1: Absolute genius.
2: Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring science. What
3: that
4: essentially means is discovering advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable.
5: Without further ado,
4: this is the Naked Scientists.
3: Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientists. I'm Will Tingle, and in the programme this week, the plastic that sterilises itself, why sweeteners are worse for you than sugar, and how will seagrass react to climate change. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKFast.co.uk James Dyson of Cyclonic Vacuum Cleaner fame runs an international design award competition that's intended to inspire the next generation of design engineers. In his words, it's a chance for budding inventors to make a name for themselves. The results from the latest round have recently been announced, and the UK's winner was an entry from a team at Imperial College and the Royal College of Art. The concept they've come up with is called Dotplot, and it's a handheld device to help women perform breast self-examination. Deborah Babalola told Chris Smith what inspired them to come up with the concept in the first place, and how it works.
5: Dotplot is all about eliminating the confusion and the misconceptions around performing breast self-checks. There are lots of tools out there to help people monitor different aspects of their health. But When it comes to breast health in particular, there aren't any at-home solutions or devices that people can use to keep on top of what is going on within their breast tissue. And it's quite important, obviously, because breast cancer is so prominent. And of course, the, the earlier you detect Um, any developments within your breast, the better. And people were relying on things like pamphlets and demonstrations and tutorials, which were quite limited in the guidance that they could provide. And so there's lots of different methods out there. It can be really confusing. People don't really know what they're supposed to be checking or or where they're supposed to check or how they're supposed to do it. So we just wanted to make that process as clear as possible.
4: And how have you done that?
5: So we've developed Dotplot, which is a tool that women can use to check their breasts each month. It basically brings together a a handheld device and a mobile app, and it will guide you through the self-check step-by-step. So what we have is that you would put in um, your general health information on the app, so like your menstrual cycle, your age, your height, that kind of thing, to help predict the best time for you to be doing these self-checks. And then you will build a map of your upper chest or your torso um, using the device. You would select your breast shape, put in your bra size, and then use the device to rescale the baseline model that we've got of a, of a standard torso and once that's all set up we'll guide you through the self-check by flashing on the point that you need to press the device on and then once you've checked over that point you'll go on to the next part of your breast and then the next part and the next part until you've covered all of the regions that need checking over.
4: So I'm thinking I've got a mobile phone in one hand, your gizmo in the other hand that I'm going to use to do the self-check. How big is the device that actually does the, the registration and the analysis of your tissue as you move it over your body?
5: Well, it fits within the palm of your hand. It's similar to the size of a you know, like an average bar of soap.
4: And that is talking to your mobile device?
5: Yes, it is via Bluetooth.
4: And so what the, the phone is doing the processing and telling the device record now and the, the device is doing what exactly to make the measurements?
5: Oh, so the device is what's kind of speaking to the um, phone so the device has is it will be emitting sound waves which will then be used to take readings of the breast tissue so you press it against your chest um, it will take the reading and then that will be recorded in the phone
4: how do the sound waves tell what's underneath the surface of the skin
5: your breast tissue kind of act as a filter and because it, the the device will be pre-trained on uh, a white like say like a thousand women And so we would have trained it to say, okay, this is what the readings will be like if there is a lump present or if there isn't anything present. And so depending on what the density of your tissue is underneath that point that you're checking over, the readings will be different.
4: Is it a bit like when you go for a baby scan and we use ultrasound? It's using sound waves and looking at the echoes that come back to work out the underlying profile of the tissue.
5: Exactly. That's it. Yeah, it's very similar to ultrasound. It just uses a, a different frequency.
4: How good is it at picking up the architecture of the tissue?
5: So right now we haven't actually tested it on human tissue at the moment, but we have done it on like breast models that we've made within the labs. And then we've embedded lumps between three millimetres to eight millimetres within that, the, the, the models of the breast tissue. And it's been able to identify every lump and also find differences between areas that do have lumps and then areas that don't. And that's that 90% accuracy for detecting whether there is a lump present. But the next step would then be testing on, on women.
4: How deeply do you think it will be able to see into the tissue? Because obviously women come in different shapes and sizes. There are some yeah. with very small breasts. Some women have very large breasts. And that could be a challenge, couldn't it? Getting it to see deeply enough.
5: Yeah, definitely. But I think that's also why we want women to be applying pressure to their breasts as well. So it kind of flattens the area that needs to, that the, the, the distance that the sound waves will need to cross. But also we're trying to do it so no matter how big your breasts are, it can reach the front of your ribcage.
4: You mentioned earlier that you put in your menstrual cycle. I mean, that's important, isn't it? Because breasts and breast tissue goes through cycles of, of growth and then shrinkage during the menstrual cycle, which can be confusing. It can make your breasts feel lumpy from time to time. So is there not a danger with this, that it could make some people into worried well?
5: Yeah, so that's why we actually, yes yeah, so we asked for the, the details of your menstrual cycle so we can tell you the best time for you to do it. So so most GPs recommend that you do a self-check like a few days after you've had your period because then you're, um, like all the chemicals and hormones are more relaxed within your breast tissue and they, they tend to be less lumpy. So that's kind of why we want to take that information so we can predict the best time for you to prevent you know, picking up any lumps that aren't really problematic. And that's also why we compare monthly readings just to make sure that if there are you know, changes that you need to be aware of, we flag those. And if, the, if it is just a lump that's you know, lumpy because your breasts are lumpy during the month, we're, it's not likely that it will pick that up in the following month.
4: So you would effectively get a profile which it can compare one month with the next. And if you've got an area that might be a bit sinister, it's going to say, well, that hasn't changed. This is the one to look at. And then I suppose you could take that to your GP and say, I'm a bit worried about this area. Could you have a look as well?
5: Yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly what it would do. So yeah, you're comparing them and then we're highlighting any changes and encouraging people to go in to get them checked clinically if the changes do persist.
4: Given that you've got this working potentially for, for one very important part of the body, there are others that also we're encouraged to self-examine. Men are encouraged, especially young men, to examine their testicles to make sure they haven't got testicular cancer. It strikes me that you could do the same thing with that, couldn't you?
5: Absolutely, yeah. That is one of the goals. I think once we've got the technology working really well for um, detecting lumps within your breast tissue, we definitely want to adapt to early detection of other cancers and diseases as well. So yes, that is that is the goal.
3: Deborah Babalola on her Dyson award-winning concept, Dot Plot. Now, much of the food and drink we consume these days contains artificial sweeteners. They most commonly appear in sugar-free soft drinks, tabletop sweeteners for our teas and coffees, and dairy products like yoghurt. These chemicals and additives allow food companies to make products which have a sweet taste without pumping them full of sugar. But now, a study published in the British Medical Journal connects a high rate of consumption of these sweeteners with cardiovascular diseases among 171,000 French participants. James Titko spoke with Mathilde Tuvier, Doctor in Epidemiology and Public Health and Principal Investigator of the Nutrinet Santé cohort.
6: During follow-up... About 1500 incident cardiovascular diseases occurred. And to give you an idea in the group of the highest consumers in this cohort, there was the equivalent of 346 incident cases for 100,000 participants year followed, compared to the equivalent of uh, 314 cases in the non-consumer group. But really the important point here is that the the association between artificial sweeteners and increased cardiovascular disease risk was robust and statistically significant in all sensitivity analysis models.
2: I read recently that around half of an average person in the UK's calorie intake is ultra processed food and drink and that's food that's most likely to contain these artificial sweeteners.
6: Yes, in France, the proportion of energy brought by Ultraposis food is more about 30, 35%, so lower than in the UK or the US, for instance, which is more of 50, 58%. But yes, indeed, participants who enter these cohorts also tend to have globally healthier health behaviors and, and also dietary intake. So we make the hypothesis that in the real life, in real population setting, and maybe in the UK, we would have even higher amounts of exposures to ultra food. And so maybe the associations in real life would be even stronger than the one we observed in the cohorts. Yet it's still a hypothesis that we will never be able to uh, to verify. But yes, it would be plausible to think about that.
2: It seems to me there's a growing body of evidence to suggest that ultra-processed food is having a severely negative impact on public health. And a lot of these diseases are, are related, aren't they? Obesity and cardiovascular disease. But yet they're still so prevalent in all of our diets. When are the Food Standards agencies going to do something about this public health disaster it feels like we're sleepwalking into?
6: Research interest in ultra-processed food, and so the the epidemiological studies about that are quite recent. We now have about 50 studies showing associations between ultra-processed food and adverse health outcomes. Yes, indeed, evidence is accumulating. We still don't know exactly and precisely within these ultra-processed food, what are the substances, the the type of food additives or other substances, contaminants created during processes or contaminants from food packagings and so on, which substances may cause problems. And so this is really what we want to investigate now and to advance knowledge on this topic. Even if we don't know exactly where the problem comes from, from which substances and so on to reduce this overall intake, there are already some countries in Brazil, in France, which already introduced in their official recommendation the fact that uh, ultra-processed food intake should be uh, reduced in the population. This is one type of action, recommendation for the population, but the other one would be uh, to act on the regulation of the products. It can't be to forbid ultra-processed food. Uh, this is why we need some precise research saying uh, this type of molecule, this type of additive and so on may uh, cause a, a risk for the population.
2: Are there any potential obstacles in the way of limiting the presence of these additives? I'm imagining some potential corporate interests that might slow the progress.
6: Even when scientific evidence is very, very strong, which is not uh, the the case for the moment, I mean, with this, this only study, but in a topic when we begin to have more and more scientific evidence, there is often barriers from powerful lobbies and the food industry that don't want things to change and see these type of results that are not in line with their, their economic interests. So it's not always easy. We really had the case currently with the, the Food Label Nutri-Score. Uh, This food label provides an overall idea of the nutritional quality of the food product. And so it's very useful for citizens that don't have the time to read the labels, which are very complicated and so on. So here at a glance, you have the idea of the, the nutritional quality of the food with a very simple color label. And so there is a strong battle between science, which validated this logo with epidemiological study, experimental studies showing that participants have are more inclined to select food healthier for their health, they they understand more the the, the way that they could rank produce against uh, according to their nutritional quality, but yet there is a strong barrier by the food industries. Really don't want uh, this uh, logo to be put on pack. So, and here of course with food additives, we, we have the same kind of oppositions uh, with some industrial. But yes, don't 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 want to remove these additives from their process, and so it's not always easy to obtain. Uh, to win the battle of public health against economic interests.
3: Mathilde Tuvier. The spread of infections in healthcare settings is a major problem. Dirty hands are one source, but equally, surfaces like gloves and aprons and other single-use plastics can also pick up and pass on bacteria and viruses through contact. As he explains to Chris Smith, Andrew Mills from Queen's University, Belfast, had the bright idea of adding something to plastic that reacts with light to produce a bleach-like substance on the surface that can wipe out contaminating microbes.
1: I knew that there was an awful lot of disposable plastic materials that were used in the healthcare industry that provided a clean surface but rapidly got contaminated. And of course, I also knew that one of the major ways that viruses and bacteria are transmitted in a healthcare environment is by landing on the surface and then you touching that surface. So I wanted to imbue these plastic disposable materials with extra value and that value will be the ability to self-sterilize how it's really neat you can put into them pigment particles really inexpensive the basic pigment particles used in painters titanium dioxide But in paint, they actually coat the pigment particles so that they don't actually do any photochemistry. That means they don't interact with light and then generate things on their surface that would do damage to the polymer um, because you don't want your paint falling off. But here we do. We want those pigment particles to actually absorb light and then destroy anything that's on its surface. So that's what we do. We use naked titanium dioxide particles, put them into plastic. And they're able to destroy viruses and bacteria, in particular, most notable these days, SARS-2.
4: Something similar has been done with self-cleaning glass, hasn't it? I think King's Cross Station in London was one of the first places to do this, where by adding titanium dioxide particles to the glass, it then reacts with the ambient light to produce nasties that that blitz the dirt. So you're basically endowing a plastic bag with what they did at King's Cross. Exactly. The difference is that at King's Cross Station, the sunlight shines hopefully some of the year on the glass. Your plastics, if they're in a a clinical setting, as you're advocating for, they're going to have just artificial light. Is there enough energy in that light to make this work?
1: That's a really good point. The interesting thing about these pigments is they really don't need very much to make them quite reactive and certainly reactive enough to generate the small level of bleach which is effectively what it does on the surface to destroy a virus or a bacterium you only need to damage them before they die so the question is is look is there enough and the answer is yeah there's window light and there's a bit of uv light that comes in there but also a lot of fluorescent tubes well old fluorescent tubes Actually, emit a small amount of UV. And so when we were doing our trials, we were using uh room light, uh, fluorescent lamps, and uh and very low UV light associated with that coming through windows. one of the things that really surprised us was both worked, but actually the room light one worked really well. We thought it was going to be so small because there really is like microwatts per centimeter squared of UV falling onto the surfaces, but actually they seem to use them very well and then an, it was sufficient to destroy the kind of levels of bacteria and viruses that we are looking at. The chemistry
4: that's going on then, the UV light that's coming from whatever source hits this titanium dioxide. How does it yeah. then turn into, you dubbed it bleach, what does it do when it hits the titanium dioxide to then produce something capable of destroying microorganisms?
1: So when you shine light onto these pigment particles, you create bleach like molecules that can destroy. Uh, viruses and bacteria.
4: And what sorts of microorganisms will they knock out in in your plastics?
1: We tried it with SARS-2 and it worked very well for that and also the influenza virus. We looked at some other viruses as well. It actually worked for all of them.
4: Can you turn the plastic into a range of different things? Is it actually plastic that you could use the same way we we love using plastics for you can turn it into any kind of shape size or characteristic within reason
1: you can and many people a lot of people have used the same technology to create things like um mobile phone covers and keyboards for computers Uh, we're not so much in favor of that because once you start handling it you put on sufficient coating of all the sweat and the grease and whatever it is that you've got in your fingers, but then it overwhelms the ability of this material to keep itself clean. Disposable plastic materials where you're worried about the micro droplets that are coming from your breath falling on it uh, uh, and then transmitting those viruses or bacteria to some other person, this is what this uh, technology is targeted Is it
4: easy to do, Andrew, to to make this? Because obviously one of the big attractions of plastics and one of the reasons it's such a scourge now is because it's really cheap. So does this enormously increase the cost burden of making these things or is it fairly easy to do?
1: I'm sorry, I kept interrupting because of my enthusiasm for it. We use extrusion to make these. There's nothing special about this. You just, when you're making this thing, instead of adding one pigment, you add our photoactive pigment. That's the only difference. And the photoactive pigment is that used, or behind it, is that used in paint. So it's incredibly inexpensive. It will not add any great cost to a penny, maybe, maybe even less than that, to what the existing cost of that apron or that tablecloth or that curtain is at present. The beauty of it is, It has this extra value, this extra ability to keep you safe and well. Andrew Mills.
3: The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find
4: out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions.
3: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Will Tingle. Still to come, new antibiotics that grow on trees. But first, the ocean is a fragile but vital source of food and carbon storage, and a major contributor to both of these elements is seagrass. But with a rapidly changing climate, how will this vital habitat react to an increase in ocean temperature and acidity? Emmett Duffy from the Smithsonian Institution spoke to me about the importance of seagrasses to both marine ecosystems and humans alike, as well as new research highlighting how climatic pressures could affect their populations going forward.
7: I think of seagrasses as the Serengeti of the sea. These are uh, big expanses of underwater grasslands that are also highly productive and support lots of wildlife, as grasslands do on land. Uh, And the foundation of these ecosystems are seagrasses, These are not algae or seaweeds, but flowering plants with roots that invaded the sea millions of years ago. They are critical to ocean wildlife. Lots of large animals, dugongs, manatees, sea turtles depend on seagrasses. They're also essential nurseries for fishes. And particularly in parts of the developing world, many people in coastal regions get a large part of their protein from uh, from. Fishes and shellfish that that live in seagrass beds, and finally they uh, soak up carbon that our industrial society is exhaling uh, into the atmosphere. So there's a lot of interest in so-called blue carbon capture by seagrasses.
3: In the research paper, it's stated that there are two populations of eelgrass: one found in the Pacific and one found in the Atlantic. What is sort of so notably distinct between these two populations, and how was that difference found?
7: Yeah, a big surprise from our research was finding how different the seagrass looked in the two oceans. Eelgrass is distributed globally around the Northern Hemisphere, and so understanding what makes it tick is a global problem, and we needed a global team. So we got 50 of our colleagues around the world together to sample the eelgrass uh, using the same methods so it would be comparable and we measured both the size and density and shape of the eelgrass but also the genetic structure we've known that there is uh, a lot of genetic separation among various populations of eelgrass which occurs all over the northern hemisphere but we found that the seagrass in the atlantic was consistently shorter and denser it lives in what we would call meadows whereas in much of the Pacific, uh, it's closer to, to forests.
3: And was there any noticeable difference between the genetic strength between the two populations?
7: Yes. So eelgrass originated, it evolved originally in the Pacific Ocean, and there's lots of genetic variation there because that's its ancestral homeland, so to speak. And then sometime during the Pleistocene, between ice ages, the eelgrass moved through the arctic in, and colonized the atlantic and that probably involved only a small number of plants because the genetic diversity of eelgrass in the atlantic is much smaller than it is in the pacific and what we've found is that much smaller genetic variation in the atlantic is associated with this meadow-like growth form and so probably what happened is that The pioneers who made it across the difficult journey through the Arctic were small statured plants, meadow forming plants from the edge of the Pacific.
3: So with these two separate populations, if one is less genetically diverse or complex than one other region, do you think that the uh, population in the Atlantic may be at more risk from climate change or other dangers to their existence?
7: What we know is that the growth form of eelgrass in the Atlantic seems to be constrained to being relatively short. However, the good news is that eelgrass is highly adaptable. It lives in all kinds of environments, from open ocean coasts to the inner Baltic Sea, and from the Arctic to Baja California, for example. So it seems to be able to adapt reasonably well to different climates. It should be able to make it very well if we can control uh, water quality and overfishing.
3: These seagrasses sound like essential parts of the ecosystem to protect if they're so vital to marine ecosystems and to our own food supplies. So what is the best course of action that you or I could do to help preserve these seagrass colonies?
7: The biggest threat to eelgrass and other seagrasses throughout most of the world is coastal development and particularly poor water quality. These plants need a lot of light, so they need clear water. And they only grow uh, for in most places in relatively shallow water. And we've seen success stories in the Chesapeake Bay in the United States, uh, in Tampa Bay in the United States, and a few other places where controlling Uh, runoff and pollution of the water has allowed the seagrasses to rebound and grow back again. So the best thing we can do is keep the water clear. And of course, that has lots of other benefits as well. Emmett
3: Duffy, whose paper was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. The announcement that scientists have uncovered a new family of antimicrobial compounds that are produced by the Australian blushwood tree is welcome news in the fight against a rising tide of antibiotic resistance. Very few new antibiotic drugs have been developed in recent years, for various reasons, meaning that we're in increasing danger of succumbing to infections we can no longer treat. In tests, the new agents killed a broad swathe of disease-causing bacterias. But not only that, they're also very effective at dismantling the protective biofilm that bacterial communities use to defend themselves from drugs and the immune system. This means that these new agents can help make bacteria vulnerable to other antibiotics and they boost the immune response and healing power of the tissues at wound sites. Speaking with Chris Smith and from the QIMR Berghofer Medical Research
8: Institute, Jason Cullen. Essentially what these molecules do is they disrupt these biofilm structures, but then they can also stimulate a very good immune response which enables a wound to sort of reset itself and then you get a good wound healing response.
4: Tell us a bit more about these compounds then. Where do they come from?
8: One of our collaborators was quite interested in deriving therapeutics from the Australian rainforest. They came across these compounds initially as oncology agents, but um, it turns out that they uh, they also work quite well in chronic wounds. They're derived from a Australian rainforest tree, roots and Nuts.
4: What does the plant do with these compounds? Why does it make them?
8: They act as a bit of a deterrent to animals on the floor. So when the fruit drops off the tree, they'll eat the fruit, but then they'll end up leaving the nuts alone. But maybe they also have other benefits within the seed itself in order to stop any microbial sort of degradation of the nuts.
4: How did you pursue it then? Once you had these compounds, how did you start to try to piece together what they could do against microbes?
8: Originally, it wasn't anything to do around microbes, but what our collaborators noticed is that one of these uh, similar looking compounds, which is being used to treat tumours, after it treated the tumour, you got this very nice wound healing response. There was also data from veterinary studies suggesting that this class of compound could actually close hard to heal wounds in animals. And so we set about just trying to understand if, you know, they would have some applicability in chronic wounds in the lab and ultimately help develop this for human applications.
4: So if it promotes wound healing, is it doing that just because it suppresses invading microorganisms that irritate the wound? Or is it also doing something to the animal tissue that makes that more likely to heal?
8: Yeah, we think they work by a number of different mechanisms. One of them is that it appears to disrupt the bacterial biofilm. They're not actually antibiotic in the sense that they don't actually directly kill the bacteria, but they just disrupt these structures. And the other activities that we found here is that um, they can also stimulate a very good immune response. In addition to that, they seem to induce changes in the skin resident cells, which promote a very good sort of wound healing response. So we think it's a mixture of all of these activities which come together to help promote the closure of wounds
4: do they work against all classes of bugs or are they quite discreet because different horses run on different courses when it comes to antibiotics Mm -hmm. and some are very good at treating some classes of microbes and absolutely useless against others is this a comprehensive effect or are they quite focused
8: We found that the actual main one that we're interested in can actually disrupt a lot of gram-negative and some gram-positive biofilms as well. Obviously, they don't work on everything, but there's quite a broad selection that they do work on.
4: And the resistance problem? I mean, that's ostensibly why you're going down this path.
8: Yeah, so we think that these will help sort of Circumvent the resistance problem because they're targeting bacterial virulence rather than the growth or survival of the bacteria. So, in that sense, it sort of reduces the potential for the development of antibiotic resistance. Jason Cullen.
3: And that's where we must leave it for this episode. Join us later in the week when we will be taking you on a tour of the city of science. Trieste allegedly has more scientists per head of population than anywhere else on the planet. Chris and James have been over there to see it for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch in the meantime, please do drop us a line at chris at nakedscientist.com. Your thoughts and feedback are very much appreciated. And if you'd like to support the program, donations are most welcome. You can do that at nakedscientist.com donate. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Will Tingle. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye.